Welcome to this episode of Check Us Out, the podcast of the Montclair Public Library. I'm Peter Coyle, Director of the Library, and we're glad you're joining our podcast today. Our building's been closed to the public for over 60 days, but we're still providing access online through our digital resources and services at montclairlibrary.org. In today's episode of our podcast, Molly will tell you about our Open Book Open Mind event that will be coming up online in June. It's our second one online, and I'm really glad that we can continue to provide this valuable service while we're closed to the public. She'll also tell you about two new resources we have, Creative Bug and Linda Learning. And if you're at home and feel the need to clean up and organize, you can do that with our KonMari program. She'll tell you more about that in her segment. Maurice from the Adult School will talk about some classes to help you meditate and prepare for your next job, as well as our offerings in language and music courses. Following him, our intrepid book peddlers, Ken and Kirsten, will talk about some offerings from Overdrive for teens and adults, including a new novel by Stephen King. Then we'll hear an interview by Kirsten, our teen librarian, with Candy Cooper. Candy's the author of a new young adult nonfiction book, Poisoned Water, How the Citizens of Flint, Michigan Fought for Their Lives and Warned the Nation. We hope you enjoy these things. Hello, this is Maurice from the Adult School Department. And this is Molly from the Adult Services Department. And we want to welcome everyone to our segment of this Check This Out. We're going to be talking about programming happening at the uh, Montclair Public Library. You know, there's difficult times, but we want to um, hopefully lighten the load somewhat by offering some interesting learning opportunities. So we are starting up Open Book, Open Mind online. So by the time you hear this podcast, we may have already put on the first one. That's um, on May 3rd with Ada Calhoun talking about her book, Why We Can't Sleep. And we also have on June 7th, Jesse Wegman will talk about his book, Let the People Pick the President. And from there, we may do more of that, but we're really excited to at least have these first two introductory online versions of Open Book, Open Mind. And the nice part about these online versions is that we can accommodate up to 500 people. So if you want to attend, you can definitely get into that program. We can fit more people than we would in our in our auditorium. So it's kind of nice. We have a couple other programs, including a, a really great program on home organizing on May 20th with Cassidy Nacello, who's been at the library before talking about this topic. She is a top level KonMari expert, which is the, the Marie Kondo method of organizing. And she's really, she's a really great speaker and she's going to have a lot of good tips to share. And we thought it would make sense to do this program right now during spring cleaning while everyone is at home for the most part. So we look forward to that as well. And we have a couple other things coming up and I'll put, I'll put a link to our calendar in the description, but we are, we are converting to an online model for now and trying to offer a nice array of entertaining and educational programs for you. And those are all free, by the way. A lot of good programs. As far as the adult school goes, we are also it's mostly an online program for the months of May and June. And we have some uh, exciting programs coming up, classes, I should say, and as well as art lectures, art lectures, some classes, some tutorials. So one event we want to highlight, lecture we want to highlight is from one of our most celebrated art and design instructors, being March Kuhlman. She will be leading a lecture on Gerhard Richter, 
realist or abstract artist. He's one of the world's top selling living artists at this point. And she's going to take a view through his entire career, a very prolific career, you know, which involves, as the title suggests, both realist painting as well as some abstract uh, pieces in there as well. He has a very, very eclectic taste in terms of uh, his subject matter as well as his chosen form of art. So we're going to uh, provide a very good primer for on his life and career. And this will coincide with the exhibit that's going on at the Met Brewer, which is currently online at metmuseum.org. If anyone's interested and want to learn more about Richter in advance of the class or even after the class, so I think this will set people up for that, lecture, for that exhibit, then go to, uh, as I said, metmuseum.org, and you can take an actual virtual tour through their exhibit of Gerhard Richter's work. And our lecture is on Tuesday, May 12th at 3 p.m., and that will be on uh, GoToMeeting. Is that a, a paid program? That's a paid, paid program. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they can paid. register at adultschool.org? Register at adultschool.org, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Once they go to adultschool.org, there's some other classes there that may have find of interest. We have a couple of career development classes, which may be of interest to a lot of people. Our popular instructors are there. Jennifer Rogers, who's led several career development courses in the past. She runs her own career consulting firm. And she's always gracious enough to do one or two lectures for us a season. And uh, this spring, she'll be offering LinkedIn in your career. That's on Thursday, May 14th at 3 p.m. And resume development, which is on Thursday, May 21st at 2.30 p.m. These are both paid lectures. You can uh, find them at adultschool.org and register there. And they'll be held on uh, GoToWebinar. We're also offering some meditation classes, which is a lot of people have need of in this difficult period. Jessica Jens, who has led uh, Singing Bowls Meditation in the past, will return to lead a meditation for inner peace with Singing Bowls. And that will be a, a weekly class starting Thursday, May 7th at 11 a.m. Uh, it will also be uh, offered on our website. You can register on our website, adultschool.org. We also have some language classes and instrument, instrument class, lesson classes as well that you wow. find of interest. Yes, we have um, mandolin. Yeah, we also have mandolin. We also have uh, works starting ukulele this season. So you can find information and registration for those classes on adultschool.org. Awesome. Sounds like there's a lot for people to do even online right now. That's yeah, great. Yeah, we have some wonderful instructors that have been really generous with their time. And their nice. Before we wrap up, I want to bring everyone's attention to another version of online classes. We've acquired two new virtual class um, resources. One is Creative Bug, which is a art and craft focused, basically database of various videos and classes that you can take at your own pace. You just have to use your library card to get in for the first time. And we also added lynda.com, which may be familiar to a lot of people. Um, which is more professional and technology-related coursework, which is also self-paced and can be done online. And both of those are available at our website. Right now we have our little slideshow has spots for both of those. You could just click and it'll take you right to the website. Um, and I'll put some some links down in the description as well. Just a quick note, if you're interested in doing the Linda courses, you you have to log in with both your library card number, so it's the whole number on the back of your card, no spaces, and you're going to need your library PIN number, which depending on when you got your card, it's either the last four digits of your 
library card number with the last four digits of the phone number we have on your account. So that sounds confusing, but just give it a try. And if you still can't get in, um, you can contact us and we can just reset your, your pin for you. But you'll be able to get in. It's two really great resources. And those were generously provided and, and underwritten by the Montclair Public Library Foundation. And uh, we hope that combined with our live classes, these can be um, ways for you to work on skills or hobbies as you, as you please. Sounds very useful this time. I mean, I, I visit both sites. I'm really impressed with both of them. Particularly Linda. I, I wasn't aware. I'm not taking Linda class in the past, but the, the scale of class that are being offered is everything from like music production to, you know, design to business. It's very thorough. Linda is uh, that's a wonderful resource for the community, I think. Yeah, I agree. It took me like a while to just read through the really long list of topics that they cover. It's great. And Creative Bug's really good too. It's like you can't find like the quality of that like just on YouTube alone. It's like it's like the luxury model of like art and craft classes. It's really cool. Let um, my great artist let my artist as well, correct? Yeah, it's like like expert instructors. It's really top notch and I and very it's I, I previewed some. It seems very like easy to follow and easy to use and user friendly. So wonderful. All right. Well, thank you for listening to our segment. We hope everyone's still doing well and we miss seeing you all face-to-face every day, but just reach out on our website if you need anything. We're here. We're checking email. <laughs> and our social media channels as well. Yeah, yeah. You can reach us a lot of different ways, actually. So whatever way is easier for you is fine. All right. Take care, everybody. Take care. Until next time. This is Ken, and I'm here to talk to you about some new books coming out in May. Unfortunately, several of the books I've been looking forward to this month have been postponed, but I am still very excited about some books that are coming out this month. First off is I, John Kennedy Toole by Kent Carroll, a fictionalized biography of the author of the classic novel A Confederacy of Dunces. For those who don't know the backstory, Toole was a writer from New Orleans who wrote Dunces back in the 1960s. After numerous rejections and suffering from depression, he committed suicide in 1969. Ten years later, his mother persuaded the novelist Walker Percy to read it, and Percy fell in love with it. Kent Carroll, the author of this new book, was the editor who finally got Dunces published back in 1980. I'm very curious at how the story of the author of one of my favorite books is going to be portrayed. Next is The Last Trial by Scott Turow. I have to admit, I'm not a big fan of legal thrillers, and I've never read any John Grisham books except for the one that he wrote about baseball. But I did read Turo's Presumed Innocent back when the movie with Harrison Ford was released, and I really enjoyed the character of Sandy Stern, who was played by Raul Julia in the film. Stern appears in a number of Turo's later books, most prominently in The, the Burden of Proof, and now returns in what Turo says will be his final appearance. In the new book, Sandy is 85 and defending an old friend accused of murder and fraud. As he digs deeper into the case, he learns more than he wants to know. Stephen King writes a lot of books, but it's been a while since we've had a collection of novellas from him. His new book, If It Bleeds, includes four new novellas. Little about them was leaked before publication, but he rushed the book out a few weeks early so that it would be more widely available during our self-isolations. Based on reviews, he tackles a few topics he's explored before, writer's block, the dangers of technology, and a crime fiction horror mashup. 
but it's the one titled The Life of Chuck that most intrigues me. It begins in a dystopian future and proceeds in reverse chronology to tell the story of a seemingly ordinary man's life and mortality and how he is intertwined with this nightmare future. I was a big fan of Robert B. Parker's Spencer novels and have continued to read the new ones written by Ace Atkins. In Parker's later years, he introduced two new characters, Jesse Stone and Sonny Randall. A few writers have continued the Jesse Stone series, but no one had picked up the Sonny Randall mantle until Mike Lupica wrote Blood Feud a few years ago. Now Sonny returns in Grudge Match, where she reluctantly helps a gangster acquaintance find a missing woman from his organization. I've read other books by Lupica, who is a noted sports writer, and I'm curious to see how he writes this character. It would be great if he could combine his strengths and have Sonny investigate something in the sports world sometime. Last is Shakespeare for Squirrels by Christopher Moore. This is the third of Moore's pastiches on Shakespeare. The character of Pocket was introduced in Fool, Moore's take on King Lear. He later appeared in The Serpent of Venice and is now back in a new version of A Midsummer Night's Dream. This one is played as a Dashiell Hammett-style murder mystery. Puck has been killed and Oberon hires Pocket to solve the crime. It sounds like a lot of fun. All of these will be available through Overdrive as ebooks and e-audio, and physical copies, of course, will be available once the library reopens. Stay safe, everyone. Hello, this is Kirsten, teen librarian at MPL. For my recommendations this month, I'm bringing several teen new releases that will take you on journeys from a summer in Paris to a college tour of many cities to a dark fantasy world inspired by a Polish fairy tale and more. Best of all, they're all available in ebook format through Overdrive. First up is Mad, Bad, and Dangerous to Know by Samira Ahmed. Told in alternating voices, this story follows Kayim, a 17-year-old American Muslim girl with French and Indian parents. Kayim is a budding art historian on a summer trip to Paris. Though she wants to enjoy the trip, she struggles with worries about her emotionally distant boyfriend in a failed essay contest. However, things begin to change when she meets a young man who is a direct descendant of Alexander Dumas, and they begin to search for a lost painting of a mysterious woman. As their search begins, readers learn the story of the subject of the painting, Layla, who lived in the Ottoman Empire during the 19th century. This novel deals with themes of Orientalism, women's voices throughout history, and who has the right to tell certain stories. If you're interested in art history and want to take a virtual trip to Paris and follow an intriguing mystery, this is the title for you. Our next title, Time of Our Lives by Emily Wiberly, is also a novel told in alternating voices, this time of high school seniors Juniper and Fitz who meet by chance on a college tour at Boston University. Fitz's mother suffers from early onset Alzheimer's and his choice would be to stay close to home to care for her, but she pushes him to pursue opportunities farther afield. While Juniper can't wait to graduate and move away from her hometown and her high school boyfriend. The novel follows them throughout several cities and explores their different perspectives and drastically different life circumstances as they begin to form a romantic connection. Next up is The Lightness of Hands by Jeff Garvin, which follows Ellie, who has bipolar disorder, and her father, a washed-up magician with a heart condition. After countless career setbacks, the two can no longer afford their rent or to pay for their necessary medications. They've taken to using their skills to commit small thefts to keep themselves afloat, but Ellie sees an opportunity out when her father receives an offer to recreate his greatest trick live in Los Angeles. This book exceptionally captures the struggles of a teen dealing with mental illness and is a beautiful story about a father-daughter relationship. It also evocatively portrays the life of an itinerant performer on the road. Next, we travel from summers abroad and road trips to the dark fairy tale inspired Don't Call the Wolf from debut author Alexandra Ross. 
This story follows a shapeshifter queen of the animals and a knight who was the last surviving member of a line of legendary dragon slayers. These mythic figures must come together to slay a golden dragon that threatens their kingdom. The story features Eastern European inflected imagery and is loosely based on the classic Polish story, The Glass Mountain. This is a novel for fans of dark fantasy in the vein of Winter Song by S.J. Jones. Finally, The Empire of Dreams by Ray Carson introduces us to Red, an orphan teenager with magical blood, who seeks to join an elite army called the Royal Guard after the royal family's attempt to adopt her is thwarted. This novel alternates between Red's experiences with the Royal Guard, which becomes embroiled in political intrigue shortly after she joins, and her early childhood, during which she was enslaved by various tradespeople who sought to harness the magical properties of her blood after her mother was murdered. This book is set in the same universe as Carson's The Girl of Fire and Thorns series, but it's a standalone novel. It's highly recommended for fans of Carson who want to reimmerse themselves in the world she's created, as well as for fans of Tamora Pierce novels. Thanks for joining me this month. I hope you're able to check out some of these great titles and more of our ebook offerings for teens. Everybody, today we're here with Candy Cooper, author of the new young adult nonfiction book, Poisoned Water, How the Citizens of Flint, Michigan Fought for Their Lives and Warned the Nation. Candy is a Pulitzer Prize finalist who has been a staff writer for four daily newspapers from West Coast to Midwest to East Coast during her career as a journalist. A seasoned investigative reporter, she has long had an interest in writing about and for young adults. Full disclosure, she and I also have a connection to one another that involves the Montclair Public Library. Candy, do you want to explain that? <laughs> I would love to, Kirsten, and thank you so much for inviting me to do this with you. We know one another because I have been the uh, director of education for Succeed Together, which is a uh, an after-school tutoring program for families who need help, and it's uh, at lower no cost. And so it's this wonderful after-school program that takes place on the third floor of the Montclair Public Library. And uh, so I came to know all of the librarians on the third floor and all the staff on the third floor. Thus, you and I have gotten to know each other. I did step away from that position in order to write the Flint book. So Tony Martin has been filling in for me, going on two years now, <laughs> and doing a wonderful job. So I'm very um, happy about that, but it's, it's a wonderful program. It is. We really love having that connection um, with Succeed Together and with you. It's great for the library. Um, which brings us nice segue to my opening question for you. Uh, when and why did you move to Montclair? We moved here in 1998, and it had to do with my husband's work, actually. Also, he was working in Princeton at the time, and we were really drawn to Montclair because of all the reasons that one is. I think the diversity and the school system and the architecture and the kind of um, urban feel to to Montclair. It was it wasn't if you had to move to the suburbs, it was the acceptable suburb to move to, <laughs> and we love it, of course. For sure. I feel like there's definitely yeah enough dynamic stuff going on here. Um, is there a favorite local restaurant that you've been either enjoying takeout from during the past few weeks or are excited for reopening, hopefully soon? Well, 
we live on the same street as this restaurant that just reopened called La Roca, I believe. And it's an offshoot of Giotto, which still operates, I guess, on Church Street. So they are doing takeout during this pandemic. And so we have availed ourselves of their food and it's really good. I think it's fantastic. So I am looking forward to their reopening and being able to eat outdoors and all that sort of stuff. But um, if you want something special, I think it's very good. It's an excellent choice. So definitely, <laughs> I second that. <laughs> um, so uh, let's see, what is your favorite way to use the library, either Montclair Public Library or just libraries generally? And what well, it's, <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about the Montclair Public Library and my history with, with it. And I first came to know the library, well, I first came to know the library when my son was, you know, three years old and we started going to the third floor to check out children's books. Then around 2008 or so, I uh, enrolled in an MFA program in creative nonfiction at Goucher College. And my thesis that I had to write a 200 page thesis was about the social history of Montclair. And while I did um, many live interviews with uh, people who'd lived here for decades, um, or were second and third generation, you know, what I discovered was that the uh, Montclair Public Library had a very rich trove of uh, local history. And there's a uh, librarian there who's retired now Ron Murphy, and um, he was able to point me in, in the direction. So I think there's a local history uh, room or something like that. Anyway, there were, there's just so much material there. So that was the second point of contact. And then the third, and of course I was checking out books all the time, but the third was, was Succeed Together, where I was there every day, every afternoon during the week. And that's when you really get to know the library. That's when you understand that it's not just a bunch of people milling around, that it's a wonderful cross-section of people in a town that doesn't have that many institutions where, you know, people, where the diversity really shows itself. And, and you know, the library, I, saw, I just saw it as this wonderful place where, Everybody, it's a great equalizer where people come together and succeed to get together gave me that window onto the library. And the third floor in particular draws parents who are very ambitious for their children and particularly to our program. And it's, it's real, it restores your faith in humanity because you see how much parents, no matter what their background, want the best for their children. And it's, it's, uh, it's really wonderful to be able to help make that happen. So the librarians certainly um, have been a huge part of that, of course. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I love that you use the word cross-section. Like that's one of my favorite features of the library and of, of Montclair more generally. Um, right. <laughs> is there a best kept secret about Montclair Public Library that you'd like to share? Well, I think the local history collection is wonderful. The fact that the um, Montclair Times, that the microfilm, the Montclair Times, maybe it's all electronic now, digital, but um, I was able to gather so much material from that and succeed together is a bit of a secret, I think, because it does occur on the third floor and it just looks like extra people milling around, but in fact, you know, fantastic things happen there. Exactly. I think, yes, I wish more people knew of just what a great 
institution it is and what great work right. you guys are doing. Um, great. We're going to transition a little bit into some more questions about uh, Poisoned Water, the book that you co-wrote with Mark Aronson, uh, starting with, as listeners might have gathered from the title, the book does deal with the Flint water crisis and the neglect and willful ignorance of public officials that led to the situation uh, becoming as severe as it did. Could you tell us a little bit about what led you to the topic? Let's see. Mark Aronson is a very prolific writer and editor of young adult nonfiction. And he was attending a conference in Michigan of librarians. A librarian in Michigan approached Mark and said, we really need a book for young adults about the Flint water crisis. This is missing, you know? And I think Mark responded to that, but he tends, he's a historian. And so he tends to write books that are grounded in American history, primarily Salem witch trials, a history of J. Edgar Hoover, things like that. And he knew that this particular story needed a journalist to land in Flint and really spend some time there and try to capture the, the reality on the ground. And his wife, Marina Budos, is also a young adult writer of both fiction and nonfiction, and she and I are in the same writers group. So Marina knew that I had a history of writing about young adults and for young adults, and so she suggested to Mark that I might you might want to talk with me. So he reached out. I said, that's a fantastic idea. I would love to do it. I am from Michigan. I grew up in Michigan. I worked at the Detroit Free Press. I um, wrote about children and young adults in Michigan and the institutions that were failing them, you know, juvenile justice, child welfare, that sort of thing. And my family is still in Michigan, which is one more thing that you and I apparently have in common, Kirsten. Uh, <laughs> at any rate, I was, you know, it just the idea, um, you know, sometimes you hear an idea and it just almost gives you chills because you under, you know, it just, you just understand that it's right, it's right for you. And, and for all those reasons, it, it really, it felt like it's a really great fit. So that's how it sort of landed in my lap. And I'm very indebted to Mark and, and Marina for finding me. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, it really, there's parts of it that do read like just a fantastic piece of really thrilling investigative journalism. It's, it's so, oh. so good. It's, I couldn't put it down. What do you want people to know about the current situation in Flint um, and about community activism more generally? especially now that in the wake of the crisis, as we just mentioned, there have been additional cases, including in Newark, uh, which is fairly close to home. Right, right, exactly. I think what the lesson that I learned, there are several, some of them are happy and some less so. And I'll start with the unhappy, which is that if you lie, if, if government lies, if government shades the truth or covers over the truth or tries to put a happy face on something that is essentially unhappy, that it's very easy to lose that, that trust of a, of a community, of a citizenry, and that it's very difficult to, to win it back. And that this trust or distrust, as I call it in the book, is it's so important to have it and it's so corrosive without it. And so I think that it's, it's, an, it's a lesson in how important it is for public officials 
to tell the truth. And I think one place where you see this is now that the pandemic is upon Flint, you have people in Flint who are saying, I don't believe anything they're telling us. I don't believe the numbers. I don't believe the, I don't believe that we really need to shelter in place or whatever the edicts are of government. You know, it's very easy for Flint to say, they haven't told us the truth before, I don't believe them now. And that's also true for the water, that I'm not sure that anyone in Flint will ever willingly drink from their taps again. The, the pipes in the ground have not been replaced. And more fundamentally, they were lied to then. How do we know that they're telling the truth now? So that's an unhappy lesson, although I suppose in some ways it's, it's hopeful uh, if, if it changes something. I think the more inspirational part of the story has to do with the way that people in Flint really came together over a period of time. They were, it was sort of forced upon them, but it can be a very divided town. It's been segregated and in a very divided moment in our, in our nation. And somehow these different strands of, of groups and people from uh, religious leaders to community activists to doctors and academics and just a whole cross-section of you know, socioeconomics and culture and race and all of that. And they, they did come together. They, they, made, they made things happen. They gathered nearly 300 water samples on their own. They dispersed throughout Flint and conducted this amazing science experiment on their own. I don't know if that's ever been done before. They persisted in a speaking out and protesting and going to the state capitol to speak with the governor's office and every kind of objection that one could raise was raised early and often by the residents of Flint and over time this began to coalesce into a group that became a real force and was able to turn the situation around. So I think it it argues somewhat for self-determination, um, that you can't rely on outsiders to come into a community and just fix things, that you can rely on one another to come together and make a, a, a difference larger than oneself, and that you can trust, you may not be able to trust uh, public officials, but you can trust your own sense of things, your own sensory experiences, and your sort of visceral sense of what's going on, that is as true as, or truer than any government statement, and that you can rely on that. And I think that is, you know, the fact that Flint really made change occur in Flint is a, is a really wonderful takeaway from the story. I agree. And I loved, I mean, that was one of the most striking things to me was just the way that people from different walks of life all came together to solve a problem that wasn't being solved from the outside or from the leadership, even within that community. Um, what was the most difficult part of writing Poisoned Water? You know, the, the most difficult part was in the, the research and reporting, because as I said, earlier, this was a community that had been deeply traumatized, and that included having put their faith in 
outsiders who came in. And in many instances, there was a feeling of betrayal after they did. And so because I, you know, the crisis started in 2014 and I arrived on the scene in 2017. And by then, you know, there'd been many, many news stories and academic researchers and books and a lot of outsiders coming into Flint to sort of scoop up information and then leave. And by the time I got there, there was a kind of fatigue like and, and distrust that I had never encountered before, I think, as a journalist. And it was, it was challenging. I had to think, think hard about how, how to, how to deal with that. And there was, you know, a certain amount of kind of rejection early on. And um, I, what I learned was that Flint is a big city, you know, it's, there are those who will, won't speak to you ever. And then there are others who still very much want to tell their story. And what I found was that really, I needed to start there. I mean, the, the uh, prologue of the book describes this difficult meeting where this woman, Sarah Bailey, says, the thing you need to talk about and you need to start the book right here is on this question of trust. And I took her advice because that was the only way for me to make progress was to start right at that question. Let's talk about distrust and let's talk about what's been going on that makes leads you to feel that way. And then we could go from there. But it did involve many returns to Flint. I mean, I, I spent probably, I spent a lot of, I took a lot of trips to Flint and spent a lot of time there and went back many times so that I could try to show anyway that I was committed to not just a facet of the story, but to trying to understand, you know, this, what this distrust was and why and where it came from. So that was sort of a, a question for me. Why is this so, so difficult? And that led to the, you know, the research going into to history. And then the more recent history and the more I learned, the more I understood, you know, why this, this distrust. And that really ended up helping me, I think, to write the book. So it was probably the most difficult thing, but it was probably also the most valuable lesson that I took away from it, that I really needed to understand what that was and how that felt. So that was, that was it. Okay. I think that there's definitely, yes, the sense of like long simmering kind of institutional distrust that sort of weaves in through the story. There's even one little passage where you describe taking a photograph of like an old, like beautiful mansion and somebody stops you and asks what you're, what you're doing. Right. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. Even in this, you know, super wealthy neighborhood, it was like I was trespassing. So it, it wasn't any one particular group. And I, I even spoke with a researcher at one point. It was an anthropologist, I think, who was doing some work on food deserts and access to, because Flint is definitely a food desert. And so she was doing research to try to mitigate that. And she had worked all over. She was from the University of Michigan, and she'd worked all over the world in these very remote places. And she said she had never um, encountered a place more suspicious or resistant to study 
And that was really helpful because that had been my experience. But of course, I thought, whatever. But it just helped me to gain a little more perspective on, on that. And uh, it, it made a lot of sense. Sure. Yeah. I think that, yeah, like that, like so many other things in the book just run really deep. It seems like. Oh, I'm so glad. I, that's some, certainly what I wanted. Are there additional resources that you would suggest for people who are interested in learning more about Flint um, or the water crisis or activism? You know, I relied on some fantastic first books about the water crisis. And um, one is by the doctor, Dr. Monahan Atisha, who was the one who eventually did uh, an analysis of blood lead levels in Flint kids. And she's the one who, it may have been sort of a tipping point in this, in this struggle because with that information, it was kind of irrefutable evidence that yes, this was poisoning children. So she wrote a memoir and I'm just thinking it's probably among the books that have been written, maybe the, the easiest to read, not that it's, you know, not, that's not saying anything negative about it at all. It's quite compelling that it's about her Iraqi um, roots and how her own fighting spirit led her to do what she did. And so I would recommend that. There's another journalist, Anna Clark from Detroit, who wrote maybe the first book called The Poison City. And that's a really good summary. There are um, several academic books that have been written about it. But as far as youth activism, you know, I'm probably, you're probably more familiar with those books than I am. But, you know, I think of um, Malala, you know, I am Malala. And I think it's really, I don't know if there have been books about Parkland yet, but you, you look around and, and I'm sure there's a book in the offering about, based on Greta Thunberg's work in climate change. You know, it, it seems that, that youth these days are really tuned in to what's happening to the planet and to injustices. And I, I love reading their stories that, especially when they uh, result in some sort of change. So yeah, I would advise going to speak to your teen librarian about that question. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the plug. Um, yeah, I think those are all fantastic recommendations, and I would add I would add your book to them as oh, well. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> Thank um, you. All right. Well, I have a couple more general questions for you to wrap up. But thank you so much for talking about poisoned water. Highly recommend it. It was fascinating and fascinating discussion. Um, thank you, Kristen. Thank you. So, to close out, what are you curious about these days? Oh, I'm curious about when we can all leave the house, I would say. <laughs> what am I curious about these days? You know, I am reading a book that I find myself eager to get back to. And it's about, it's called Hidden Valley Road. And it's nonfiction. And who is the author? Robert, um, a journalist, a, a very fine journalist. And it's about this family of 14, 12 kids, a number of whom, half dozen, five or six of whom were in adulthood diagnosed with schizophrenia. 
And so it's a, it's a great sort of case study or multi-case study of a family. And it sort of examines this nature nurture question, but it really, it follows the family very closely and manages to do in nonfiction what I aspire to, which is to, it, it reads almost like fiction in that he really somehow is able to get inside the, the minds and hearts of the different family members. And it's absolutely fascinating. So I'm only on about page 80 and I'm very curious about what the takeaway is. What do, what do we learn from the family? What is their name? It starts with a G. Anyway, highly recommend it. And I love to know what's going on in narrative nonfiction. I'm really drawn to those stories that are real for some reason. So yeah, there's definitely. my curiosity right now. That sounds fascinating. I'll have to check it out. I, lo- I also love the art of nonfiction. It's just such an interesting genre, I think. <laughs> I do um, too. And finally, to close this out, uh, tell me something surprising about you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so ordinary. Let's see. Um, I almost died of poison ivy when I was at Christian Science Summer Camp when I was 10 years old. (laughs) It's a story that I think I want to tell at some point. And it was my fault because I was testing my faith. And so I led a group of girls into the middle of a poison ivy patch and broke open the stalks and we, we put the oils on the back of our hands to see if we could pray it away basically and we didn't wow, we were not that, able to do that <laughs> that is definitely surprising oh my gosh and just imagine how horrible that would be it was quite horrible particularly when there were no doctors or you know medications on the scene so wow. it was it, but you know what it did well I don't want to go into great detail about it, but I kept changing the storyline. Like first it was going to be a story of redemption. Like, okay, there's this obstacle and then it will resolve because we will, you know, pray it away or whatever. And then it turned into just a tragic thing, you know, because I became so ill and I, you know, I never went to a hospital or a doctor or anything. I just was in consultation with this Christian science practitioner. So it was going to be about sort of shattered faith, but then not so miraculously, I guess, with um, over a period of time, weeks, I recovered. So then it was back to the story of, oh, well maybe I did, (laughs) maybe I did make this happen. So anyway, Christian science summer camp was great because it, it involved all kinds of stories like that of healing and, you know, trouble and then et cetera, et cetera. So. Sounds fascinating. I would read an article (laughs) or a story about that without a doubt. All right. Well, I'm not sure it's my next one, but maybe maybe an essay somewhere. Down the road. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today, Candy. It was a pleasure uh, talking with you. Wonderful talking with you too. And go Montclair Library. I absolutely love it. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, again, this was Candy Cooper, a writer of Poisoned Water, How the Citizens of Flint, Michigan Fought for Their Lives and Warned the Nation with Mark Aronson. All right. Thank you again. Thanks so much, Kirsten. Thanks for listening to this episode of Check Us Out. We hope you enjoyed learning about what we're offering at NPL while we're close to the public. 
We welcome your comments, suggestions, and feedback on all our services, programs, and offerings. Visit us at MontclairLibrary.org to learn more and to share your thoughts. We hope you and your family are well, and please remember that we're here for you.